you know, there's this belief that novels are meant to tie up all the loose ends. They're meant to explain things. In real life, that hardly ever happens. Real life is nothing but loose ends most of the time. It's the kind of shadow plot or the shadow version of uh, the usual story that, that really, really kind of fascinates me. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Head of Literature and Spoken Word at Southbank Centre, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be in conversation with novelist and playwright Damon Galgut. Our conversation was recorded just days before Damon Galgut received the news that he had been awarded the 2021 Booker Prize for his latest novel, The Promise. Previously shortlisted for the Booker Prize twice for his novels The Good Doctor and In a Strange Room, Damon Galgut grew up in Pretoria, South Africa, at the height of the apartheid era. A writer who has long inspired adulation from his fellow authors, from Sarah Hall to Colm Toybin, his novel previous to The Promise was Arctic Summer, a lyrical reimagining of E.M. Forster's relationships in wartime Alexandria and India. The Promise traces the trajectory of a wish made on the deathbed of a white matriarch, Rachel, to bequeath their family home to her black servant, Salome. Whether this promise will first be communicated by the patriarch of the family and then fulfilled by their three children becomes the propulsive force which powers the novel through several generations of family life. With an epigram from Fellini, the novel has a cinematic sweep to its shifts of perspective, which also recalls the modernism of Virginia Woolf all of which lays bare the tender emotional truths and troubled inheritance passed down from one generation to the next. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Hello, Damon, and thank you for joining us today on the Vintage Books podcast. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Could you describe how this novel began to take shape for you? Yeah, the first germ of it um, came out of a conversation I had with a friend one sort of semi-drunken afternoon we had together. He's a bit older than me, um, and he happens to be the last surviving member of his family. His parents and his brother and sister have all preceded him. Um, He's a very funny guy, and he... I know it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but he he really was uh, being most amusing um, in telling me a whole series of anecdotes about the different family funerals that he'd been to. Um, And, you know, the mix of stories which tended to incorporate the same set of characters coming up each time, just a little bit older, maybe not much wiser, um, along with the strain of humor that he brought to it um, got me thinking um, that it might be an unusual way to tell the story of a family if you if you just use this device of four family funerals um, and you know didn't really fill up fill in very much in between um, and I sort of sat with that idea for for quite a while before I thought well you know let let me try it out. Um, 
So yeah, that that was the very very beginning. But a, a whole bunch of other things attached to that idea. Books books tend to grow out of constellations of ideas for me, rather than you know single single ideas. And can you tell us a little more about those constellations? I believe that at one point in the writing, you went away to work on a film project and then came back to the novel. And what was that experience? How did that experience of working on the film then inform and reshape how you came back to the novel? Yeah, I'd made a start on the book, um, quite a traditional sort of start in the sense that I was, I knew I wanted it to be a third person voice, which is a slight departure for me. I'm, I'm usually, um, well, it's, it's not true that my previous book, the Forster book, um, was written in the third person, but it was so closely fixated on E.M. Forster that it may as well have been in the first person. Um, but I knew I wanted to incorporate a bunch of characters and, and kind of expand the focus um, in a way that I haven't in a while. So I'd started in the in the sort of conventional way, um, using a sort of quite stable narrator, unseen, omniscient. Um, but I was struggling with it um, in a number of ways, I guess. Um, partly because the raw material of the book involves, you know, funerals, which are, you know, is not doesn't make for light subject matter. Um, and partly also because I'm always frustrated by traditional approaches to anything. I, I, my instinctive response is to try and subvert the tradition. I'm not sure why that is. But in this case, I found a way to do it because I got diverted into doing a couple of drafts of a film script. Um, quite honestly, it was something I undertook for financial reasons. I was in a pinch and needed it. I, I do love cinema. I'm, I have absolutely no issue with the idea of writing a film script, but, you know, language is the least important thing in a film script. Basically, it's all about the image. Um, and I did these two drafts and returned to my book. And on the very same day that I'd left the film, I sort of, I looked at what I'd done and I, it suddenly occurred to me that the rather staid, um, narrative voice that I'd been using could be energized and fractured, if you like, in the same way that I had been doing with the film, which is to say, you know, a, a camera is a sort of narrative voice. It, it cuts, it moves in close, it pulls back. And I'd, I'd been having to think in these visual terms um, for quite a few months. Um, and then I realized that, you know, instead of the camera, I could transfer this technique to a narrative voice. So I started playing with that, basically. And it fitted very well with my own internal narrative, if I can put it like that, which is to say, you know, I think most of us have a mental voice that makes an observation and then makes an observation on the observation. So you you keep adding sort of sub-clauses to your initial clause, you know, which might be of the variety of, well, but that or and that or what if that. So these sort of internal shifts sort of corresponded, um, as I say, with a, with a kind of fracturing of the narrative. So I was bouncing inside each sentence, really, a bit like a squash ball um, from one character to another or commenting on something that I already said and so on, which um, gave the book a whole new kind of rhythm and opened a space in the narrative that allowed humor to enter in, which had an immediately sort of leavening 
effect on the heavy prose and the heavy vision of the book. Um, the narrator became a kind of presence, um, a character almost, um, which somebody else, incidentally, I've, I've used an epigraph from Fellini at the beginning of the book, and somebody said that they thought the narrator of the book operates in the same way that a camera does in a Fellini movie, um, which is to say you have to understand the camera as a character. Um, and you have to really, if if you want to get this book, you have to understand the narrator as a character who's not playing a part in the action, just, you know, is there as an observer. So I'm giving you a very long reply because this was, for me, quite a complicated process. Um, this mode of narration opened up all sorts of insecurities for me because, you know, I, I do some mentoring, if that's the right word, uh, in the creative writing program, um, sometimes at the University of Cape Town. And if any student said to me that they wanted to write a book in this way, I would absolutely forbid them to do it because it really goes against the grain. It's not the way narrative is supposed to work. Um, and yet I was having so much fun and it was working so well for my purposes that I pushed ahead with it. Um, but it was really only when I was done and could show the complete work to a few people that I trusted that I really sort of thought, well, um, this departure actually worked very well. There's a really interesting thread between what you first said about the, the germ of the novel being this anecdote that a friend of yours told to you and that the humour with which he told that story and then the leavening that the movement of the perspective created for you. And I'm, I'm glad you brought in Fellini because I was, I was going to ask about that, that in a sense it freed you up to, for, the, for the camera, for the narrative voice to move freely among the characters. And it is remarkable how mobile the perspective here is. We, we at one point inhabit the perspective of a herd of hyenas. We, we move around very freely within, within the novel and across generations. There's also this sort of undercutting subversive humour, as, as you've mentioned. Was that essential for you in tackling this very sort of tragic and, and, and deep sort of subject matter that goes right to the sort of core of I suppose a South African um, historic burden or trauma that's that's being unearthed here. Yeah, you know the South African burden was a, was a, almost a secondary concern for me. My my when I, when I was young, if if I was if I got an idea for a book, the idea usually concerned plot, which is to say action. You know, the world is action driven when you're young, less so as you get older. Um, at least in my case, it's it's become, you know, a uh, much more contemplative sort of arena for me. Um, less action, more thought. But my real preoccupation with this book, the underlying preoccupation is time and the passage of time, which tends to be the focus of my ponderings these days as uh, I get older. So um, what it fitted with immediately, this this new narrative voice, was time and, and w the way that time works. Because, you know, as I said earlier, I, I have an instinctive desire to push back against traditional narrative. And, and traditional narrative would involve establishing quite early on who your central characters are and what the situation is. And I sort of, I didn't want to go that way. Because in the big flow of time, there are no central characters. We're, we're all blips. And, you know, the the big pressing concerns that might make a novel cohere um, are artificial. So, I, of course, I needed to keep those conventions to the extent that this is a novel. 
but I also wanted to, to, to push back those conventions as, as far as I could. So what you get with a narrator that can pop from one character to another, one scene to another, um, sometimes in the same sentence, what you get is that sense that everybody's temporary, everybody's making a brief appearance. Um, so yeah, it, it, it worked very well to be able to suddenly make what in a normal book might be a totally secondary character to, to give them their little moment on the stage and, and, and to tell the reader what they were thinking or what was going on with them and then to move back to, you know, the family who are, you know, the sort of mainstay of the book. Um, and then I thought, well, why stop there? You know, you, you can push the boundaries back even further onto passing animals and spend a few hours with them. Or in one case, I spend a couple of days with a with the homeless man who has absolutely nothing to do with the family but it does open the vision of the book out at least i hope um into a larger sense of you know um what's happening in south africa but also just what's happening humanly with all of us at the, at the same time i mean I, I even leap into the supernatural in the sense that there's a there's a departed person a, a sort of ghost spirit at, at one point so all these other possible variations on reality are, you know, um, potentially part of time and have a valid place in a book where time is the main concern. And that certainly recalls the modernism of Virginia Woolf in Mrs. Dalloway. I want to focus a little more on your treatment of time in the novel, because one of the really distinctive things about it is the way that there are these quite large gaps between the four funerals that punctuate the novel. Why did you want to create these gaps in the novel? Was it in order to allow the reader to imagine into those spaces of time? Yeah, that, that's part of what attracted me, actually. Um, there, there are edges to every story. But again, the traditional approach is, is, is to not draw attention to those edges and, and to give the illusion that whoever your third-person omniscient narrator might be, that... Um, you know, they, they see past the edges as well. Um, I really wanted to draw attention to the fact that this is, if, if, if you like, a map and there are huge regions of the map where the narrative just doesn't go. So I like the fact that, um, to use a theatrical image, you know, the curtain goes up on a sequence and then drops again. And the next time the curtain goes up, you're in a different decade. You're seeing some of the same people again, older, um, changed. Um, and then, of course, you're seeing in the background the country, and that's changed too. In, in each sequence of the book, there's a different president in power, and there's a different sort of ethos hanging over the story. Um, but those things are not necessarily explained, again, because in the great flow of time, things change continually all the time. So, you know, it was part, it was part of the idiom of the book, if you like. As well as the gaps in time in the novel, there is also often a hinting at what's unsaid or unsayable in the novel. Amor receives the news of her mother's death on the very first page and she thinks to herself, nobody is dead, it's a word, that's all. You seem to be constantly pointing us to the limits of language in this novel, including the eponymous promise itself, which is never fully articulated. Amor overhears it and records and repeats that she's overheard it, but we never actually hear the promise itself. What is it that draws you to write about the unsaid or the unsayable? Yeah, again, it's this sort of perverse desire in me to overturn or 
push against the strictures of a traditional approach because, you know, there's this belief that novels are meant to tie up all the loose ends. They're meant to explain things. In real life, that hardly ever happens. Um, you know, real life is nothing but loose ends most of the time. Um, so the fact that Amor overhears this conversation, but she, she herself is not quite sure if she, if she did hear it or if she thinks she heard it. Um, and, you know, her certainty is continually questioned by other characters and the book itself does not provide certainty on that point. That seems to me much closer to the way real life operates. You know, um, how certain are we even of the things we believe we're sure about? There's, they're always open to, to question. So there's that. Um, but, you know, I've long been fascinated by, I'm not even sure how to, how to put it, that, again, the traditional novel is usually based on somebody taking some decisive action at some point, which sets in motion a, a sort of sequence of events. What happens if you don't perform the decisive action at the appropriate moment? It also sets things in motion. So I don't know. There's, there's a sort of um, unnovel um, underneath most conventional novels. Um, the, the story of what happens when you don't speak when you're supposed to, when you, when you don't make the move you're supposed to. Um, it, it also generates a plot of sorts. So it's the kind of shadow plot or the, 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 um, yeah, the shadow version of uh, the usual story that, that really, really kind of fascinates me. Um, so, yeah, at the heart of this book is a promise which may not ever have been made. Um, probably was. I mean, I, I, I believe she probably did overhear that conversation, but nobody else seems sure about it. And I th I th there's a sequence, I, I might even misquote myself in this, where, where um, her brother says to her, you know, um, are you telling the truth? And she, she, she thinks to herself, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a lie, but is it the truth? So there's, there's a kind of ambivalence at the center of it where she, she might be sure that what she's doing isn't a lie, but she can't be sure either that it's entirely true. Um, I don't know how to express it better than that. I think it's very well expressed. And you, you've mentioned a few times your ambivalence to tradition and the, in, in novelistic terms. But I, I want to ask about um, how, where that ambivalence of tradition may have originated from and whether or not that has something to do with the historic period that this novel and yourself come out of and that sense of a distrust of traditional narratives, of of, of the received narrative on on society at large and i wonder if that is partly where that sense of restlessness with traditional formal storytelling and also the novel's propulsion come from yeah it's not a question i can probably adequately answer i'm not i'm not quite clear where um my resistance to conventional storytelling comes from i've always just been you know fascinated by novels and writers that managed to push back against um, the usual approach. I could speculate that it comes from, um, you know, growing up in apartheid South Africa, for example, where we were told it was drummed into us at every possible opportunity that um, we, this inverted world, this world of inverted morality and, and strange um, immoral laws was actually the right way up. 
and that all these immoral laws actually served a moral purpose. And I mean, we were told actively that the rest of the world did not understand us and that, you know, our version of ourselves was the correct one. Very hard to keep that going if you start looking at society and the damage that's being done in the name of, you know, this strange upside down morality. So um, my early years were, you know, dominated by questions, um, firstly, just to myself, and then more vocally to people around me. And, you know, thankfully, I had a phase in my early 20s at university where one usually sort of gets radicalized of realizing that actually my instincts were correct and that, you know, the morality that had been taught to us was not a morality at all. It was quite the opposite. So I guess, yeah, you could you could say my mistrust of um, the official narrative could have could have begun there. But, uh, you know, I, I can't trace it back perhaps quite so clearly in myself. I, I just know that I'm drawn by the idea of... Um, yeah, maybe maybe just changing the rules when when one um, when one is a, is writing a novel that you you don't have to do it the way that you're taught and the you know do it the expected way that you 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 can try and make the rules stretch um, in a way that um, feels closer to how real life actually operates, which is to say, much more ambivalently than lots of novels would have you have you believe. And it seemed to me that there were some maybe affinities with what you're describing with, with Amor's experience in, in that she has this uh, formative experience when she's six, this lightning strike and, and sort of awakens her to lots of different aspects of her life. And without wanting to draw too neat a comparison, you had a, a childhood illness when you were six and recovered from cancer, thankfully. Um, and that perhaps there might be some resonance there in her in those two experiences and that sense of being a, a young person who's suddenly awake to the the kind of received narratives you're supposed to tell and actually what the life outside of that narrative looks like. Yeah. I um again I I I guess um in the traditional novel you you're especially in a book like this where there's so many deplorable characters and, and so many um, kind of awful personalities. If, if you're going to have somebody like Amor who has moral instincts, um, you're supposed to sort of set her up as, as some kind of beacon, right? You're supposed to have a good person um, as opposed to the, all, the, all the bad people. The world for me is not generally divided into good and bad people. And I, I sort of mistrust novels that present the world that way. Um, my own belief is that we're a mix of good and bad, depending on the context. Um, that each of us might behave, you know, in a in a moral way in a, at a certain moment, or in a self-interested um, bad way at, at at some other time. So, I guess I was pushing back against the obvious gesture of making a more um, a moral example. She she is the one person in this family who wants this half overheard promise to be fulfilled. Um, it would be easy to make her, you know, exemplary. Um, but I thought, I mean, she's definitely different to the rest of her family. And I, I sort of codified, you're correct, I codified my own experience into that character by having this calamitous experience that she undergoes, um, you know, match up with my own age and so on. I, I certainly don't feel like having cancer at age six made me a morally better person, but it did give me 
the sense of being set apart, maybe um, different to other people my own age, um, just because you're not meant to be aware of your own mortality so young. It's something that's supposed to dawn on you only later. Um, but it also, in in terms of the novel, makes a more open to question. Um, where the people around her are concerned. So other characters are saying, well, there's something wrong with her. The, the lightning has damaged her. Some people say, oh, she has brain damage and so on. And I wanted to leave that a little bit opaque and mysterious. Maybe there's something wrong with her more. Um, and I should point out, obviously, although she is, you know, um, morally driven in the sense that she wants Salome to have the piece of land that's been promised to her, it does take her... 30, 40 years to see that promise through, which isn't that admirable. Why does she not take a more decisive stand against her family? Um, so, you know, um, in the real world, I think most most moral actions are also open to question to some degree. They, they can be the, the good or the right thing to do, but they're hardly ever unequivocally right or good. There's always some um, ambiguity attached. So, yeah, although although I did want, you know, to keep this moral sense at the heart of everything, I also wanted to leave it open to question to some degree. And um, a more saintly instincts might be um, might be open to question in the same way, too. One of the things that perhaps undercuts that sense of anyone being kind of morally virtuous or, or wholly saintly is... The, one of the central characters in the novel, Salome, who is, of course, promised this land, but there is a deferral of, of that promise. Um, whereas the novel has this very um, mobile perspective that we were discussing earlier and that um, we, we inhabit lots of different perspectives, certainly all of the, the sort of familial central characters, but we don't have access to Salome's inner life. And there's something quite unsettling about that given that she is such a central figure in the novel and it seems in some way to be um, re a reflection on the limits perhaps of, of the mainly the white characters in, in the novel's inability to, to to sort of see her fully. Right. Yeah, that's accurate. I mean obviously, you know, the question came up early for me. Um, the, the, there's a bunch of uh, black characters whose lives are, you know, connected and intermingled with the, the lives of this white family. So did my narrator have to go into their interior worlds in the same way that he or she is doing with the white characters? And I could have, I could obviously have made a decision to do that. Um, but I decided that silence in that case could be made more eloquent. Um, and I decided to travel into the psyches of the black characters really only as far as the white characters perceived those people. Now, I, I, I grew up in apartheid South Africa surrounded by black people, many of whom were, you know, working for my family or working for, for people around me. Um, and, you know, most white people showed very little curiosity about those people. I mean, including myself as a, as a kid. You know, you might know a few ba basic facts, but Beyond that, you, there's no there's no innate curiosity to know, um, which is of course troubling. So, I thought I could trouble the readers in the same way um, by presenting these people, presenting a little bit about their lives, but then leaving again that edge of the map, and and this applied more than anything to the character of Salome because she is very very central 
to, you know, the story of the promise. The promise has been made to her. She is the person who's supposed to get the house. Um, and she's there in in all these, the four different panels of the book. Each time the funeral comes up, she's there. She's very, very central. Um, but we know next to nothing about her. I did toy with the idea of holding back everything about her and then kind of releasing it at the end of the book, doing doing a kind of sequence where... You know, I opened the door into Salome and told us, told the readers a whole bunch of things about her, and and thereby accentuated the fact that until then we'd know nothing at all. Um, but for good or bad, I decided not not to do that, um, and and to let her keep her silence and let the book keep silence about her. Um, and again, this is this is an innate desire to push back against the traditional approach, which would, you know, normally fill in all those blanks and thereby give you the illusion that the book answers all things. I don't believe books answer all things. Um, and the fact of the matter is that a character like Salome, as a as a person in real life in South Africa, a rural woman working for a family like this, still has no voice in South Africa. It's it's one of the most troubling things about us. That we're what twenty-seven years into democracy at this point, lots of black people's lives have improved. Um, there is a whole new sort of class of um, middle-class black people um, that's been created, um, and yet the poorest people in the country, the the people who've been truly dispossessed, are still silent. There's still a silent presence, and you know. White people and indeed many black middle class people have very little curiosity about these people. So I wanted Salome's silence, the fact that we don't know about her, that blank spot in the book to trouble readers. So I'd be very happy to know that people come to the end of the book and are disturbed by the fact that we don't know who this is. Um, why? Why has she not spoken? Why do we know so little about her? I, I sort of turn it on the reader with just one line. Um, you know, towards the end where I where I say, if 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 you know so little about her, it's perhaps because you weren't curious enough to ask. Um, that's, of course, not not a fair accusation to point at every reader, but it's a fair accusation to point to a great number of them, of us, I should say. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, I guess it's an example of um, using an anti-novelistic technique um, to make a point and 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 to make an absence and a silence resonate. At least that's what I intend. Yes, it's it's certainly a very resonant and bold decision to allow that silence to speak volumes rather than um, perhaps give us that interiority which perhaps might absolve the reader in some way because we feel we have heard her perspective. Um, clearly this is a novel deeply rooted in a family history over many generations, but... There's also, as you've been saying, there's a there's a really powerful strain in the novel of uh, perhaps some at some kind of deep level about a story about contemporary South Africa or South Africa over the last half century, say. At what point did you realise the the political charge of this novel? Well, it came to me um, as a secondary thought, in fact, because my my primary concern was with the family. But then I realized if, you, if you're going to be telling the story in four acts with gaps of time in between, if you made those gaps wide enough, you could, um, you could throw a window 
onto the different decades of you know the last 30 40 years of South Africa which which are also the years of my adult life and and the years I know best um so yeah I wanted I wanted to evoke South Africa but I I really wanted to evoke it in the background um as a kind of literary wallpaper if you like I I didn't want to you know make any specific points or take any moral stand I just wanted to show you know or, or, or give a feeling for the the reigning spirit of the country at the if you like at that time so if you pick the right sort of um historical moment such as you know the rugby world cup um when when mandela was was president you you could capture something of the spirit that was that was in the country um i'm aware that it's it's painted a kind of a, an alarming and dismal downward tra- trajectory but i'm afraid that is pretty much how i feel about South Africa's passage um again from its promise if you like back in 1994 to the very very dispiriting years of uh, Jacob Zuma but mm. um I I don't think of it as a political novel first and foremost that's that's a kind of secondary consideration for me Your previous book reimagined a period in the life of E.M. Forster and there did seem to me some resonances with Howard's End in the sense that it's a novel about um, a promise of property and land. Um, I wonder if if I could ask a two-part final question. Um, if Forster had any presence in the novel for you and relatedly, if you'd give us any recommendations of things that you've been reading at the moment or, or books that may have um, been in your thoughts when you were writing The Promise. Um yeah actually actually um James Wood in his New Yorker review of the book um picked up on the Ian e. Forster link um you know the the Howard's end and the and the the promise of home basically um but it came to me as a sort of happy surprise when he mentioned that because it, it truly had not occurred to me not consciously anyway although I do believe there are unconscious links uh between works um e- even for the writer um you know the books the books that were useful to me if you like in the writing of this tend tend tended to be not you know recent books they they the works of modernism because i guess they played most radically with voice and with time so i think the spirit of william faulkner is the one that's most present in this uh in this particular book but um Virginia Woolf as you mentioned although she was quite a late discovery for me i only came to virginia woolf um in fact during the writing of this um but she sort of corroborated for me that what i was doing was permissible she she gave me permission um and uh patrick white an australian writer who's fallen out of favor quite a lot but um i've always always thought he was he was kind of marvelous but they but they're you know they're books from a ways back as any truly modernist work would be but 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 those are the ones that i guess were my guiding stars in in the writing more than anything else news that stays news as Ezra Pound might say um thank you so much Damon it's been a real pleasure talking to you and likewise Ted thank you so much for your time we hope you enjoyed that conversation thank you for tuning in you can find out more about the promise and all the books we discussed in the show notes what were your thoughts about this episode we'd love to hear your responses You can leave a review or find us on @vintagebooks on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, keep reading boldly and thinking differently. Mm-hmm.